Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello and welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're joined by Robert Pondicio, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a former inner city public school teacher. Robert writes and speaks extensively on education and education reform issues and has more than 20 years of journalism experience, including senior positions at Time and Business Week. Mr. Pondicio is the author of many books, including How the Other Half Learns, Equality, Excellence, and the Battle Over School Choice. If this is your first time listening to us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a podcast where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on issues at the intersection of education and culture. We appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to Anchored at cltexam.com. Now, without any further ado, let's get on with the conversation. Welcome back to the Anchored Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. We are here today with the one and only Robert Pondicio. Robert, thanks for being with us. Uh, thank you, uh, one and only. We should be grateful, right? Uh, Robert, let's. Uh, I'd love to just start off and then hear a bit about kind of your early education, uh, what kind of schools you went to, and if you loved uh, school growing up. Uh, wow, what an interesting question, um, and thank you for that. Uh, there, there, there's nothing remarkable at all about my um, my schooling or upbringing, and, and and I've come to wonder over the years if that doesn't make me remarkable vis-a-vis other folks in education reform, because you know mm. a, a lot of folks in this work, um, you know, were, were those kids who taught their stuffed animals school when they were seven years old and went to elite schools and you know never had a grade less than an A. Um, I, I was. <laughs> was not that kid. You know, I went to a garden variety uh, collection of, of uh, district public schools on Long Island, New York, um, end-to-end, K-12, uh, 1980 graduate of Walt Whitman High School, not the famous one in Bethesda, but the one actually, you know, half a mile from where Walt Whitman actually lived on Long Island. Um, and and I mean, to be earnest about it, I really do wonder if if that perspective hasn't kind of put me in good stead for this work, because, you know, mm-hmm. I, I alluded to a moment ago, a lot of people in our world, you know, never felt anything other than at home at school. You know, I, you know, I, I, I was not that kid. I mean, not that I was uncomfortable in school, but there was nothing remarkable about my kind of, you know, blue collar upbringing and, and my garden variety mm-hmm. um, you know, elementary, middle and, and high school on Long Island. So I, I, I wonder if I can, you know, give myself a compliment, if that, if that doesn't, you know, put me, make, make me a little bit more like the kids that we are trying to reach and teach in totally. American education, as opposed to, you know, the usual denizens of, you know, think tanks and policy shops and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. And then tell us kind of next stage of that journey. So you went to, to Mercy College, is that right, for your undergrad? <laughs> yeah, uh, which I sometimes refer to as Lord Have Mercy College. <laughs> um, I mean, the, 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 the dirty little secret of my education, um, Jeremy, <laughs> is that I didn't have my bachelor's until I was nearly 40 years old. Uh, I went to SUNY Oswego, yeah. keeping up my pattern of just kind of you know ordinary institutions. Um, took a semester off midway through my sophomore year. And for all I know, they're still holding my room at Scales Hall on the shores of Lake Ontario. I, you know, my, my, my semester off turned into 20 years off. And if I'm if I was going to be really candid about it, I, I have to confess that as I got into my adult life and career, 
I kind of liked not having my degree. I, I was working for many years in the magazine industry, at Time Magazine and Business Week, and, and those places were just sloppy with the products of elite schools. And here I was, the kid who dropped out of state school. So it almost made me distinctive. I mean, and make of this what you will. The only reason I finished up my bachelor's at age thirty-nine. Uh, was because I wanted to become a public school teacher, so I, I couldn't I couldn't do that without without that uh, that that credential of a BA. So it became kind of like a, a box checking exercise for me. And then almost the next day, uh, I was enrolled in a master's program. I, I signed up to be a teacher with a program called the New York City Teaching Fellows, which is you know ostensibly for, for mid career guys like me at the time to you know spend a couple of years in 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 uh, low performing uh, inner city schools. Uh, so again, to you know, to, to enter that program, I had I couldn't I couldn't be accepted until I finished my degree. So I finished my degree and became a teacher. Uh, so Robert, I want to talk about your journey. So you're talking about receiving a very normal American education, uh, you know, nothing too special there. But then now you're a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, you focus on K twelve education, school choice, charter schooling. So tell us about that journey. What actually got you to be a fan of school choice uh, and why do you believe it is so important? Yeah, well, I mean, let me go, let me go back one or two steps. I mean, why did I become a school teacher, you know, at, at age 39 or 40? Uh, it was frankly just a, I, I jokingly call it a mid-career impulse purchase. Uh, I'd been in the magazine <laughs> industry and the media for 20 years. And then in the months uh, after 9-11, the 20th anniversary of which was coming up, I think a lot of us in New York were thinking, mm. huh, you know, what can we be doing to give back? So I was, you know, seduced by an ad for the New York City Teaching Fellows on Subway that said, um, the, the, the verbatim ad was, you remember your first grade teacher's name, who will remember yours? And it just caught me at the right moment. So mm. I kind of signed up wow. with a lark. And I, I described that program as kind of like being on the game show Survivor. You know, I kept not getting voted off the island as the process went on. And mm. after a while, kind of fell in love with the idea and said, OK, well, they're they're dumb enough to, 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 to give me the keys to the classroom. I'm, I'm dumb enough to do it. So so that's the, you know, that that's kind of what happened. Um, and, and to be you know more earnest about it, I've been involved for many years uh, on the board of a not for profit. I'm still on their board of Eastside House Settlement, which is, um, you know, it, it kind of, while during my time on the board, it kind of reinvented itself from cradle to grave, social services to uh, a more educationally focused uh, mission. So, you know, all things just kept coming up education. You know, I, I had a child, so I was focused on her education. Um, at Eastside House, we were talking about education. I'd written a series of books for young readers about science and technology. So, you know, everything just, the, the motif just kept coming up. Um, so I ended up teaching for what I thought was going to be a two-year stint at literally the lowest performing school in the lowest performing district in New York City in the South Bronx, District 7. And then it just kind of got under my skin. I mean, you know, I signed up for two years. I stayed for five, um, you know, started really enmeshing myself in in the kind of, you know, in a lot of the things, frankly, that I think get overlooked in education, particularly curriculum, which we, we, we can talk about. Um and and unwittingly, this you know my two year career, what was supposed to be my two year mid career public service, then turned into you know a second career. I'm still at it. Fantastic. I, and I think we did something similar. I was in in Brooklyn uh, at Progress High School. What years were you teaching in the Bronx? Uh, about two thousand two to two thousand seven or so. Okay. Six years yeah, yeah. I, I was oh four to oh seven uh, in, in in Brooklyn as well. Fascinating. Uh, and did the same teaching fellows program actually. Okay. 
Yeah. No, there you go. What, what cohort were you? I, the year was 04. I don't know the, the cohort. Okay, so you were maybe two years behind me. And even though it was like the second or third year of the program, I was like the fifth cohort or something, because I guess they do two cohorts a year. But yeah, we were okay. We were nearly OG teaching. Yeah, fantastic. So, um, Robert, so, so teaching in the Bronx, tell, you have a couple kind of highlights, uh, memories from, from working with students. I mean, had, had you been in an environment like that before? What was that like for you? No, no. And in fact, um, I, I think I honest to God, had not been in an elementary school uh, since I'd been an elementary school student, you know, so we're, we're talking about a gap of 30 years, um, mm. which, which created no small amount of cognitive dissonance. I mean, most of the folks, and you probably remember this, Jeremy, most of the folks in the teaching fellows, even though it's ostensibly for mid-career professionals, they were, you know, mid-career meant two or three years out of college, you know, most, most of the folks in my cohort were 24, 25 years old. Um, mm. You know, so here I was like earnestly mid-career. Um, so, you know, I had a, a set of preconceived notions about what elementary school uh, looked like based on a 30-year-old model. And, and it was kind of um, strange. In other words, there, there was, I guess I would say I started with a kind of a willing suspension of disbelief, you know, that, that um, what I was doing, what I was being trained to do did not resemble my memory of elementary school. Mm. But then I thought, well, you know, we've learned some things. So maybe, you know, it's just that maybe that's uh, we, the, 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 the science has advanced. Um, and then that, that willing suspension of disbelief turned into a bit of skepticism as I kind of, you know, learned more about uh, how kids learn and got interested in curriculum and the work in particular of E.D. Hirsch Jr., uh, which we can also talk about. And then it kind of turned into, you know, militants and, and, and you know, a little bit of anger, honestly, at, um, you know, some of the, the, the practices that we were using for kids. And I think that's probably why I ended up becoming, you know, a second career educator, just because I realized, um, and I don't want to cast aspersions um, on anybody, but I just realized I was really ill-prepared, um, you know, to, to, to be a, an effective teacher. Um, and, and there's lots of complicated reasons for that. Um, but, you know, I, I ended up uh, becoming enamored of, you know, a certain style of education that we were just not offering at this school, which, sorry, I, I didn't uh, answer Aruba's question earlier about school choice. But one of the reasons yeah. I became a school choice advocate was because I saw no other way uh, to, to, to get kids the form of education that I thought they really needed. Um, yes. And that was just unlikely to ever be adopted by, by my elementary school and other public elementary schools. And I know we didn't put this in the show notes, uh, the questions, but I'm wondering, you know, we, we taught in New York City during the, the same period. I, I was in Brooklyn. My wife was actually teaching in bedside during the time that you were in the Bronx. And some of the stuff we saw there as well was, was things we'll ne I'll never forget. I remember a couple of times, actually, my wife, uh, she was teaching third grade and, and two different times uh, students stabbed another student oh, uh, with wow. a pencil, uh, resulting in a trip to the, uh, the emergency room. And uh, I, I broke up a lot of fights. You know, I was a, a dean the last year that I was there. And um, it made me begin to reflect on, on the, um, the family. I remember that there was yeah. almost uh, maybe one or two in the three years I taught in New York City uh, of students who lived with a, a biological mom and dad. It was almost unheard of. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm wondering if, if during that time, if you could speak to that, of, of kind of how your thoughts about the role of the family, the role of parents uh, influence education. Yeah, I, I remember quite clearly after five years of, of teaching, uh, first feeling you know quite burned out. I, I honestly felt like I be, was starting to become 
the guy I'd signed up to replace. Uh, I mean, I've, I've made this comment for years now that teaching is the easiest job in the world to do badly and the hardest job in the world to do well. So in other words, five years of, of really, you know, keeping your nose to the grindstone is, is exhausting and, and, and morally exhausting too. You know, you, you, you do find yourself getting, you know, kind of, kind of frazzled. Um, but, I, but I remember at the end of the five years think, thinking, okay, I want to stay in this work. What, what's, what should I really be trying to do here? Um, and I remember thinking that the two most promising levers to pull um, were curriculum and parenting um, because you know, th- those were just two areas that the ed reform world, um, such as, as such as it was 15 years ago, seemed indifferent to. And, and I think, you know, maybe blind to would be a better way to put, put it. Um, but my, look, my experience, Jeremy, was just like yours. Uh, I mean, I, I wrote a book not that long ago about the Success Academy network of charter schools, and this was one of the observations. I think I actually wrote about this uh, directly in the book. I remember going on a second grade field trip uh, with with some students from from Bronx One, which was literally, you know, uh, a quarter mile away from where I had been a, a, a school teacher and across the street from where I'd been a student teacher. And I noticed there were more dads on the field trip as chaperones than I think I'd seen in any given year of parent-teacher conferences. So, you know, it, it, and, and this is, you know, there's only so much you can do with this information, but it just seems to me um, incontrovertible uh, that, that, that um, you know, families have a profound effect on education. That doesn't mean that Success Academy's job was easier, but they absolutely visibly had far more intact families, families who were um, you know, employed, religious, exercising choice, ambitious for their kids, etc. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, it, it's just uh, incorrect to think that, that that can't make a difference or, or that conversely, that, you know, those of us who taught in more challenging settings should be able to overcome all of those deficits. Um, and we're not even supposed to call it a deficit, right? Um, but I mean, it's a disadvantage when, when a kid is growing up in poverty and doesn't have an intact family. You know, that, that, you know, that, that kid is just has a, 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 steeper, a steeper road to climb. And it just seems, you know, uh, wrongheaded to, to pretend that's not so. You know, uh, I, I try to avoid, you know, getting into politics uh, on the Anchor podcast, although, you know, we, we do, of course, talk about things like school choice, but I will never forget this, talking to students in, in New York City where a number told me that, you know, they would say, you know, my, my mom and my dad, they're really together, but they can't be married because my mom gets more money uh, if they're, you know, and, and, and I, you know, graduated college, like most of America, you know, pretty, you know, diehard, uh, you know, on the left Democrat, I was, I was, you know, big into, into Obama and excited about that. But that, that really impacted me hearing students say that they weren't trying to make a political point. They were just talking about the reality of their life saying, yeah. you know, my, it, it's beneficial. And I thought, what kind of legislation, you know, encourages, you know, the, the, the dissolving, uh, of the family unit. Um, how, how were you impacted in terms of thinking about policy during during your time uh, in the Bronx? Yeah, but well, that's a that's a great question, and I could probably take up you know several podcasts answering it because um, by pure happenstance, I think I kind of fell into a niche um, that was weirdly unoccupied in 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 education practice and policy, and that is in between the two. You know, it's. You know, there, there's a, a wide gulf uh, between education policymakers and practitioners, and, and they tend to view each other with either you know, suspicion or hostility. So, so I tend to be the guy in that gap uh, explaining one to the other. I mean, it was, 
I remember it being very weird to me to realize that education policy mostly focused on, on the externalities of, of education, you know, on mm. funding, chartering, teacher quality, testing, accountability, et cetera. All good things, you know, don't get me wrong. Um, but but it's, it's as if policymakers lost interest at the, 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 the door of the classroom. And having been a teacher, like, well, that's strange because, you know, that's, that's where the action starts. Um, and, and it's simply a mistake, I think, to assume, you know, as economists might, for example, that, that it's all the same and all we need to do is measure what goes in and measure what comes out and we can, you know, uh, reach conclusions. Uh, you know, in other words, if you think that all we need to do is just kind of change the incentive structures around education. Well, clearly you've never been to ed school, you know, because you probably <laughs> would, would not emerge yeah. with that idea if you'd been to ed school. You know, if you have a nuanced view of different school models of, you know, what's the difference between, you know, classical and progressive and project-based learning, Montessori, mm. et cetera, you know, th- then you realize, wait a minute, there, there's, there's a lot of levers inside the classroom that you can pull that go beyond merely, you know, creating incentive structures. And I don't know if that was an answer to your question or not, but yeah. I mean, it, it's it's it suffice it to say I think there's there's it's a fruitful vein of ore to mine, um, or I guess another way to say this I've written this is if we'd spent the last you know twenty or thirty years trying to improve practice uh, you know and and not being agnostic about it my my guess is we'd probably be in a little bit better shape uh, you know mm-hmm. than we are having spent the last twenty or twenty or thirty years merely you know pulling the testing and accountability lever for example. Mm-hmm. So, Robert, I was reading an interview you did with Chalkbeat, and I love the angle that you came at about school choice. With You were talking about how low-income families deserve the opportunity to choose uh, schools the same way well-off families are able to. And I really think that's not an angle that's discussed a lot of the times when people talk about school choice. So can you expand on how you believe school choice plays a role in diversity and inclusion and, and leveling the playing field for people who have, you know, maybe not thought about this perspective or even need another reason to become a fan of school choice? Yeah, uh, thank you for the question, Aruba. It's funny, I was just thinking about this by happenstance just today, and it occurred to me that, you know, what would it look like if if families who, say, moved to the suburbs and picked a specific home in, like, you know, Greenwich or Montclair or Scarsdale, if they conceived of themselves as school choice families? Because they are right. In other words, if you have, you know, the the wherewithal to 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 pick up and move and and choose a home in the district, and you specifically choose it because of the school, well, then you have absolutely exercised yes. school choice. Now you may conceive of yourself, and you probably do, as a public school family. But let's be clear, you know, you exercised agency. You packed up and moved to get your kid into an appropriate school setting. So, you know, uh, th- this was the theme of my book, How the Other Half Learns. You know, if, if you are white and affluent uh, and or affluent in, in this country, you do that, you know, almost reflexively. It doesn't even occur to you that there's anything unusual about that. Um, so this book was, was really about uh, the Success Academy uh, network of charter schools in New York City. And, and it made that exact point. You know, what we take for granted, um, you know, as, as unremarkable is simply not available to, to low-income families of color, um, you know, in, in, in with, with the same ease. So, uh, you know, along comes uh, Eva Moskowitz, the founder of, of, of uh, Success Academy Charter Schools, 
and and it's controversial when she does it. In other words, you know, you and I get to pick our school. You and I get to pick up and move. Nobody raises an eyebrow. My daughter went private end to end. Nobody accused me of, you know, robbing the New York City school system of the resource that is my child. Um, but when Eva Moskowitz comes along and creates uh, something similar for, for low-income families of color in places like the South Bronx, where I used to teach, well, suddenly it's a controversy. Isn't that interesting? Um, you know, and, and nothing more needs to be said about that. It's just we have a very different set of standards for how we think about school choice based on, uh, I mean, not just on skin color, but based on your affluence and, and, and based on, on the opportunities that you can pay for. So that just strikes me as a fundamental disconnect and, and frankly, um, an immoral unfairness. You know, why should we place uh, speed limits on opportunity for one group of American children and only one group of American children. Um, you know, it, the, the, the subhead of my book, I think, was, you know, the battle between equity and excellence. And that's really what it comes down to. If you are, you know, white and or well off, you get excellence. If, if you are um, low income, black or brown, you get you know, equity. And, and, and usually a finger wagging lecture about the need to be patient, um, you know, while, while we're fixing it. Well, how many generations of of, of just be patient, we're fixing it, do we, do we need to, to live through before we start to wonder uh, you know, if, 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 that's, uh, if that's ever gonna happen? Uh, it just, that, again, that fundamental unfairness. Um, and I'm not a you know, school choice zealot here, but it just strikes me as unconscionable that, that, that other, other people's children cannot have what, what my child had unremarkably. Mm. Robert, I wanna kind of shift and, and talk about wonder and curricular content uh, and, and core knowledge. Uh, the term wonder was actually a term I never heard being used in education until I started to get around uh, class, classical education people and, and, and their belief that, that education is kind of rooted. The beginning of it is wonder, curiosity. And, you know, sometimes you'll hear people in classical circles talk about, uh, you know, mainstream K-12 kind of mm-hmm. beating wonder out of kids or killing wonder. Uh, is that because of, of form? Is it because of, of content? Uh, and if so, what, what kind of content should students be doing to, to cultivate moral imagination, wonder, that sort of thing? Yeah, I'm, I'm wholly out of my depth, Jeremy, on classical education. It's something that I was only dimly aware of, you know, late in life and was not aware of at all as, as a child. I mean, growing up in Long Island, you know, our version of school choice was there was your, your, your local district school and, and private school meant the local Catholic school. Um, I've joked about this over the years, saying if you'd said to me boarding school, I would have asked, well, what did you do? You know, because my, my dad was forever threatening to send me to military academy. And you know, sometimes I wish in retrospect that he had. But if I'd known as a kid that there was such a thing as classical education, I, I may not have, might not have appreciated it at the time. But if I could, you know, hit rewind and do my life all over again, uh, I would have benefited yeah. enormously from, from, from a classical ed, uh, education. And, and I'm fascinated by the model now. Mm. Um, but I mean, what, this is this is not a direct answer to your question. But but one of the reasons you you invoke core knowledge, um, I, I've become a you know a fan of core knowledge over the years and a, kind of a disciple of Ed Hirsch Jr. I'm I'm on the core knowledge board, in fact. Well, and and it's simply because um, Hirsch, uh, boy, I've said this so many times. He was the one guy whose work uh, described what I saw in my South Bronx classroom every single day. Kids who could uh, decode, but but not necessarily comprehend, um, 
And that was because he correctly diagnosed a lack of background knowledge. You know, our, our curriculum had been basically had, had valorized, um, you know, the personal, you know, it, it was all mirrors and no windows uh, to, mm. to, to use that metaphor. Well, and then we wondered why kids were, were, were not achieving on, on, on their reading tests. It's because, you know, as, as Hirsch has pointed out, when kids are reading about um, uh, domains of knowledge that they're familiar with, they, they appear quite strong when they're reading out of their depth. And that's what happens on a standardized test. Suddenly you're reading about, you know, a passage about, you know, the customs of Dutch New Amsterdam, for example, which you, know, you never heard of, you know, New Amsterdam, even though you're going to school in what used to be in New Amsterdam. So, so you're, you know, it's over before it starts. I mean, the kids are just, you know, floundering. It's not because they are, are dull. It's not because, you know, they are, um, it, it, the, the problem is what we did not give them, you know, that, that, that well-rounded knowledge that you and I take for granted and, and that, um, you know, more effective schools build into their curriculum. Uh, so that's, that's why, you know, his work became my work uh, because we were not giving children um, the well-rounded curriculum in, in art and music and science and history that is the key to literacy. I mean, I don't want to wonk out on you here, but I mean, his basic thesis is, is that, you know, reading is not a skill. We teach it as a skill. We teach, you know, reading comprehension skills and strategies. Um, but unless you are I mean, I'll, I'll try to do Hirsch in two sentences. It's, it's basically language proficiency rests on shared knowledge that uh, that mm. readers and speakers make assumptions about what uh, readers and listeners know. And when those assumptions are correct and we all have the same basic, you know, store of mental furniture, background knowledge, then then it's a then it feels like a skill. It feels like a you know a fluid process. But when when those uh, the, the the common knowledge base is not there it falls apart. I, 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 I like to use, this is my analogy, not Hirsch's. I'm not sure what he would think of it, but I, I describe this as like the child's game of Jenga, where, where every wooden block is a little bit of background knowledge or a vocabulary word. You know, if you've ever played the game, you know, you can pull out a couple of blocks and everything's fine. Then at one point you pull out one too many and the entire thing collapses. So that to me is a metaphor for what it's like, you know, to be a, a, a disadvantaged kid um, you know, who is does not does not have the same level of vocabulary and background knowledge that 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 um, that well off kids take for granted. Well, you know, I'm thinking about um, the, the movement away from core knowledge and then the introduction of these words that everyone in education uses all the time, terms like critical thinking skills, higher order thinking skills. And it, it didn't occur to me until, you know, five or six years ago to start asking people what we actually meant. And I discovered that nobody really knew what we meant. <laughs> by critical thinking skills or higher order thinking skills. And if anybody had thought about it at all, they started describing something that sounded exactly like logic, which got chucked long ago. Um, I'm wondering, I mean, do, you, do you feel like kind of mainstream K-12 uh, with, with the, the movement away from core knowledge uh, and this, this sudden support that we're having around school choice, uh, do you feel like something right now really seismic is happening? I mean, especially the way COVID has kind of poured gas on this with support for school choice now being over 70%. Uh, are we about to see just kind of a, an earthquake of disruption? That's a really good K-12? question. And, and can, I, can I say, how about this? Let, let's, let's put in our calendar a date for 18 months from now, at which point I will come back on the podcast and give you a definitive answer. Because <laughs> it's exactly the yeah. question that I want to spend the next 18 months uh, researching. First, before, before I get to that, let me just kind of um, hearing, I'm going to go again on, on the Hersheyan model. But I mean, I think it's important for folks to realize that all of these skills that you were describing, critical thinking, problem solving, are not skills at all. 
they are what Hirsch would call domain specific. In other words, you cannot critically think about baseball unless you know baseball. It's not a, it's not a muscle, like it's not going to the gym and developing a critical thinking muscle. There, there was a paper some years ago uh, with the title, could Steven Spielberg manage the Yankees? And the answer is no. I mean, cause he's a creative genius, but he's a creative genius filmmaker. There's no reason to suspect he would be any better. It, the, 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 the skill doesn't transfer to an unfamiliar domain. Mm-hmm. Okay, now setting that aside, your, your, your fascinating question about um, uh, school choice and, 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 and what it's gonna look like now. I mean, the reason I'm so fascinated by this is, is if you had asked me 16 months ago, you know, in the first weeks of COVID disruption, I, I think I said this publicly, I probably wrote about it, saying like, let's, let's tap the brakes on the new normal talk, okay? Like, you know, mm. um, the, 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 we have a cultural habit in this country of sending our kids to zoned public schools. And that's a damn hard habit to break. So, you know, you know, let's, let's take it easy before we assume we're going to become homeschooling nation and COVID changes everything. Well, that was 16 months ago. And, and we are now, you know, days away from possibly the third school year or portion of a school year being disrupted by the pandemic. So at some point, Jeremy, I don't know when it is, you know, um, at some point, new habits are formed and, and this becomes, and, and that new normal starts to feel indeed like the new normal. So mm. look, I, I, I don't think we're going to become a, a thoroughgoing nation of you know, pandemic pods and homeschoolers and micro schools anytime soon, but, but I'm revising my, my tap the brakes on the new normal uh, take because I think mm. you know, the, the longer this goes on, the more likely it is uh, that you will see parents, if for no other reason, then they just need predictability in schooling. Mm. Um, and, if, and if public schools, if their local public schools become unpredictable for a third year, um, then, then I think all bets are off. Mm. So to end off the episode, you know, we love asking this question. Do you have a favorite book on your bookshelf or a text that you would uh, recommend to our listeners? And, well, okay. and it is a beautiful bookshelf, by the way. I wish our, <laughs> it our is, listeners it really could see what, what we're looking at. It's amazing. Thank, thank you. Here, I'll, I'll, uh, if you if you can see it over my shoulder, my my, my uh, home office bookshelf is is chock a block with education books. Um, and if I were to uh, throw them all away, except for three authors, uh, they would be uh, Edie Hirsch Jr., who I've I've talked about. Uh, Dan Willingham, uh, the cognitive scientist uh, from the University of Virginia. Uh, who I basically think of as the guy in the white lab coat who says, uh, where, where Hirsch is a theorist, uh, the, the uh, Willingham in the lab coat says, yeah, Hirsch is right, and, and here's why. Uh, and then the third would be Doug Lamov, um, who wrote Teach Like a Champion. Um, and frankly, that's for no other reason than I, I wish Doug had had his books published when I was a teacher, because what I needed as a new teacher was not theory, you know, it was not, you know, Paolo Freire, pedagogy of the oppressed and whatnot. It was, it was a practical guide to teaching. In other words, what I love about Doug Lamov's work is he's done more than anybody else to um, make teaching teachable, as it were. Uh, and this gets back to the first question about ed school. I mean, again, I don't want to be unkind, but I don't think I was really adequately prepared to be a teacher by ed school. Uh, and, and I don't know, frankly, that very many ed schools really do um, prepare uh, teachers for, for the realities of, of, of classroom life. I think that's a, a real problem in, in our profession. You know, there's an assumption 
that, um, oh, some things you, you just have to learn on the job, which, well, I mean, we, we don't do that in any other profession. You, you wouldn't say to an air traffic controller, well, look, everybody crashes a plane. You know, don't worry, it'll get better. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm joking, but I mean, that's literally what we do to teachers. We, we, we act as if, you know, it's a hazing ritual. And there's some, you know, there, there's, a, there's like some kind of nobility about getting beaten up on your, on your first year on the job, which is, you know, your first year teaching fifth grade is some other kid's first year and only year perhaps in fifth grade, you know, so we just, mm. the, the arrogance, frankly, of assuming that it's okay uh, to turn, uh, frankly, people like me loose on classrooms and, and, and um, make their mistakes in front of children is, is, is weird. That's the nicest adjective I can, can use to describe yeah. it. So, so Doug, um, I think, has done more than anybody to, to make mm. teaching teachable and give new teachers in particular, not that his work is only applicable to, to new teachers, but I think that's the sweet spot, uh, you know, to give them the, the, what they really need to be effective quickly. Um, and, and, and I just cannot overstate how important that is. I mean, this is not the question you asked, but the reason I keep referring to Doug is, is because, you know, I, I think we expect too much, frankly, of, of the nation's teachers. Uh, and and I, another point that I make all the time, if, you, if you've got 3.7 million men and women um, doing anything, you're going to have a normal distribution of human abilities. But but the way we model teaching, or the the, the we we predicate the job on the assumption that they're all going to be saints and superstars, not men and women of ordinary gifts. That's not a knock on teachers. It's a knock on on how we codify the job. So you know, if if I've, if I've learned anything in 20 years in this work, it's that that's not we're, we're not going to get better results uh, until we we make teaching teachable, until we temper our expectations. You know, and this is why I'm a curriculum advocate as well. You know, we, we, you got to make the job doable by, um, by, by those folks. You know, as, as Donald Rumsfeld did not say, you go to school with the teachers you have, not the teachers you wish you had. Um, but right now we're just going to school with the teachers we wish we had and, and the results are, are, are predictable. So, so Lamov, I think, is probably, you know, more understands that than, 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 than anybody. And, and that's what makes his work important. Robert, uh, people who, who are listening in today and they, they like what they're hearing, uh, where can they find more of your work? I, I for one, discovered you on Twitter. Uh, Daniel Buck DM'd me and said, this is my new favorite follow. And I, I started <laughs> following you right then. And, and Fooled uh, another one. Yeah. Wait, what's your Twitter Twitter handle? And then it's, you're going to order, it's, order um, a book. Um, which, you know, I, I guess if folks have access to this podcast, they can see how my name is spelt. Um, but it's so it's first initial last name at our Pondicio on Twitter. Uh, although I do have a love-hate relationship with Twitter, the easier thing might uh, be to just kind of Google my name and, you know, the, the, the stuff that I write at, at AEI um, at the American Enterprise Institute is, 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 uh, is not hard to find. I have a so-called scholar page, which I still chuckle at, the idea that I'm a scholar, um, that most of my work gets, gets published or republished there. And then how the other half learns Amazon, wherever people get books or... Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, it's uh, it was it was published by uh, by Avery a few years ago, um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 still available in, in paperback even now on on Amazon. Fantastic. Is there an audiobook option as well? There there is, um, and um, and and yours truly was the narrator. Um, it was you know I, I started my career in radio news. I'm not God's gift to to broadcasters, but when I found out they wanted to do an audiobook, I asked my publisher, "Hey, who's who's doing that? Can I do it?" And they were like, are you kidding? Like, no, no author wants to read his own book. I'm like, I'd love to read my own book. That's awesome. That's so I, I enjoyed doing that. And, and then you have to lis listen to me natter on for, I don't know, eight hours or so. 
Again, we're here with uh, Robert Pondicio uh, over at the American Enterprise Institute. Robert, thanks for your time today. Hey, I really enjoyed it. Let's do this again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.